On April 20, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance hosted a book talk with Doug Fuller, professor at Zhejiang University School of Management and author of Paper Tigers, Hidden Dragons, Firms and the Political Economy of China's Technological Development. Professor Fuller discussed how China, a developing country with an inefficient financial system coupled with asset-destroying state-owned firms, has still managed to create a number of vibrant high-tech technological firms. The talk was moderated by Edward Cunningham, China Programs Director at the Ash Center and Director of the Harvard Kennedy School Asia Energy and Sustainability Initiative. For more information about the Ash Center, visit ash.harvard.edu. So again, thank everyone for, thanks for coming. So for me, it's quite a pleasure to be able to introduce Doug, Professor Fuller. Uh, he and I actually attended uh, MIT together, and so we're old friends. And he has done a whole bunch of really interesting work that I deeply respect because he spent time um, in the weeds. He spent, he spent 15 years speaking to an entire range of firms up and down the value chain. Um, largely related to technology, um, spending an enormous amount of time digging into the, the corporate strategies of these firms uh, in semiconductors and in related subsectors uh, across China, including uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, so the greater China region, uh, and spent a lot of his time uh, also as a PhD student at the Industrial Performance Center, which is also where, where I came out of, um, now headed by uh, Richard uh, Lester. So Professor Fuller is in the Department of Business Administration at Zhejiang's University uh, School of Management. His focus is on innovation, as I said, technology policy, also international business. Um, he also previously taught at King's College in London, uh, Chinese University of Hong Kong, and also uh, American University uh, in Washington, uh, DC. He has led multiple research projects around competitiveness uh, sponsored by the Alfred uh, P. Sloan Foundation. Uh, and also the Cervantes Policy Institute uh, of Hong Kong. And so our plan today is really just to have uh, Professor Fuller give his talk right till about 10.05.05. Um, then we'll open the floor to uh, Q&A. So without further ado, Doug. Hey, thank you Welcome. very much. I'm delighted to be back in Cambridge. The only problem is it's... Uh, 4.15 a.m., my time in <laughs> Hangzhou, so um, I'll, I'll try to not collapse in front of you. Um, so today I'm going to talk about what I believe is a fundamental puzzle when you look at China's development in high technology or technology-intensive areas. So when we look at China, uh, I would argue that from sort of the Washington consensus or neo-Washington consensus point of view, China does not have very good market institutions. And it's very incomplete market institutions, institutional voids, if you will. Um, and China also, although it has extensive state intervention, I would argue, and, and state intervention particularly in these high technology sectors, I would argue that it has not been very effective state intervention. So from the point of view of people who believe in the developmental state or some sort of status intervention, China uh, falls flat in that area as well. And yet I would argue that you have seen technological upgrading in these technology intensive sectors in China. So how did this come about? Um, 
And I would argue it came about because there's this particular type of firm, these hybrid firms, uh, that are foreign invested firms. They're essentially linked to foreign financial institutions abroad, but they were founded by ethnic Chinese entrepreneurs. So they do an end run around the misallocation of finance in China, while at the same time not being like your typical multinationals, your typical foreign invested firms that have no credible, credible commitment to local development. Um, instead, because due to their shared ethnicity with uh, China, they either believe it's in their economic interests or they have some other ideational motivation to have their firms pursue uh, what I call a China-based operational strategy. Pursue a strategy where they base their core firm resources in China to compete in markets. Um, and now to go into the social science uh, lingo of the talk. Um, first of all, let's define what we're talking about here in terms of explanation, in terms of the dependent variable. So what is technological upgrading? People throw these terms around uh, quite loosely sometimes. And I would argue that, or I'm using it uh, in terms of techn uh, upgrade, technological upgrading comprises both technological learning, sort of some attempt to catch up to the frontier of knowledge, as well as technological innovation, uh, creating new knowledge at the international technology frontier. But I would argue that for a country that is developing, such as China, you really need to measure this uh, appropriately. So I would argue that you have to judge it vis-a-vis -vis the international technology frontier and for commercial products. Um, and finally, that somehow it, the technological upgrading has to be embedded in the host economy, in the local economy, either through local personnel conducting these activities or through uh, using the local suppliers. And so I already mentioned these hybrid firms, these hybrid foreign invested enterprises. But I would argue essentially there are four types of firms in China. Um, among domestic firms, there's sort of two categories. There are the favored domestic firms, favored by the state. Um, these are firms that are typically domestically registered um, and have access to finance from the state banking system. And then there's this large swath of firms, typically private firms in China, that are sort of neglected. They don't have uh, good access to the state banking system. Um, and they're sort of restrained in terms of their financial resources. They have to use their internal resources for uh, development. And finally, there are your typical multinationals. Um, these are just all the other uh, foreign invested enterprises that um, do not have a China-based operational strategy. And I would just add here that the, this includes some firms that may be of ethnic Chinese origin, but they just don't embrace this uh, China-based operational strategy. Just to give an example, if you looked at Taiwan, um, it's part of one, you know, it's one of these ethnic Chinese economies, as uh, Huang Yasheng has called them. Um, and yet TSMC, this very prominent Taiwanese firm, has often been almost antagonistic towards China and always sort of downplaying uh, China's prospects in these 
uh, high-tech industries. So what explains why you have these hybrids driving technological development? And there's two sources of, uh, of causation. First, there's the source of finance. And here, there's either little external finance, or domestic state finance, or foreign finance. And this basically, the source of de finance determines the different upgrading paths of the domestic vis-a-vis -vis the foreign firms. Uh, for various reasons that I'll get into in a minute, the, the domestic firms are constrained by their uh, finance or lack thereof. Whereas there's also this operational strategy, either China-based or foreign-based. Um, and here, the China-based operational strategy uh, separates the outcomes of the multinationals versus the um, hybrid firms. Before I go on, I would just like to give a few, two slides of showing, because um, I'm about to bash the state banking system in China. So if you don't believe that the state banking system in China isn't working very well, here's some data that might convince you. So compared to these 44 other countries of various origins, China's banking system is very bank-centric. And that's neither here nor there. It's just a fact. But the overhead costs are quite high for their banks. And much more worrisome, their financial efficiency. The higher the number here, the more efficient. They're very low. They're in negative territory where none of the other uh, firms are. Another way to look at it is China has been amazing at generating non-performing loans. So here is China versus the US, Japan, South Korea, and, and then uh, several um, emerging economies. And they've just been much, much higher over time than the other place. They went down for a little bit. Probably in 2009, one could argue, a lot of that was just uh, using the, you know, the, there was this huge, the floodgates were open of credit. And so they used new credit to pay off the old credit. But I think most people in recent years think um, the non-performing loans have um, increased quite, quite substantially. We all still remember that there was a global financial crisis or a US-caused global financial crisis. But if you look at the US, they never really, as horrific as it was, uh, in terms of overall non-performing loans as a percentage of the economy, the height uh, was perhaps 3.3%. People can argue about that. But um, nowhere near the figures you see in China. So. The causal flow essentially is from state firm relations, how close these firms are to the state, determining the sources of finance and markets um, that shapes the incentives and capabilities for upgrading. And then there's this other causal flow from ethnicity. And this narrow red line is supposed to suggest um, sort of a, a weaker causal relationship here uh, leading to operational strategy. And why is it weaker? Well, just from empirical observation, not all uh, ethnic Chinese firms embrace this China-based operational strategy. Some do, some don't. And the combination of this operational strategy and the incentives determine the technology strategies of the firm. And all else being equal, that determines how much it contributes to China's upgrading. To 
play it out across these different firms. So we have the neglected domestic firms. They have very little finance. They can't really um, invest in a lot of capabilities to compete in these uh, technology-intensive se sectors. We're assuming that domestic firms are, have this China-based operational strategy. They don't really have the wherewithal to pursue a lot of technology uh, investment or technology activities, and thus their contribution overall is low. The favored domestic firms have the opposite problem. They have lavish state support, but it's too lavish. So it actually undermines their capabilities in terms, if you think of the literature on soft budget constraints, and they often have very low incentives. Um, because it's not just the financial system, but a lot of them are able to feed at the trough of state procurement. Um, Again, they have a China-based operational strategy. Their motivation for, from, there, from that is high. But given the soft budget constraint, they um, don't really have a lot of motivation to, to upgrade when they can just survive without it. And their execution for upgrading tends to be poor. So their contribution is also low. For multinationals, they face a very different system of finance. It's a much harder. Uh, budget constraint. Um, and so they know that they're going to have to survive on their own capabilities. Uh, this is assuming, remember, they're already in this technology industry. So they're, they're interested in maintaining or upgrading their capabilities in that. Um, but for multinationals, when they look at China, they look at it very pragmatically. They don't have any credible commitment to it. They may be interested for various, maybe labor factor reasons to invest in China. But um, it will be on a case-by-case -case basis. Thus, their technology activities in China are also variable. So they have a much more moderate uh, contribution. For the hybrids, they face the same financial uh, situation as the MNCs. Um, but they have a much higher uh, commitment to competing from resources in China. They're, therefore, they pursue more technology activities in China. And that uh, leads to a higher contribution um, to China's technological development. Um, since this is a book talk, I will right here sort of talk about several of the chapters and then give you more information about each one. So at chapter two, I want to understand why when I went to uh, development zones in China, particularly, I went to development zones that weren't national level ones here, but um, that weren't national, develop, uh, national zones. But here, I'm focusing on, on, on national ones. I wanted to understand why those look very different from the type of development uh, zones and uh, the development activities led by officials that I saw back in the day in Taiwan, and that also arguably occurred in uh, places like Singapore. Um, and I also wanted to look at more on the innovation rather than the technologically learning side, how um, China was or was not mimicking Silicon Valley. You, all over China, there's you know, every zone wants to says they're going to imitate Silicon Valley, or they come up with their own names for, you know, we're the the, the, the Guanggu is the one in Wuhan, or the Optics Valley, or, or many others. But I wanted to understand um, what were the processes that 
determined whether or not they were able to use venture capital effectively, because I think many people understand that that's a big part of, the Sil Sil of Silicon Valley's success. And then in chapter three, I wanted to look at the opposite uh, viewpoint, not at sort of smart, smart ups and small firms, but very large firms, sort of more of a Korean or Japanese style of development. We're going to build very large firms with a lot of internal capabilities to compete. Um, so I looked at the large Chinese firms and why it was that they, with the exception of Huawei, have had trouble competing. So I'm going to give a few examples from that as well. And then um, in chapter four, I uh, wanted to, one, look at how MNCs vis-a-vis -vis hybrids approached uh, managing R&D in China and then also provide some overall evidence um, of the amount of technological activities, particularly more on the innovation side in terms of patent analysis. And chapter five and six, which is on the my beloved integrated circuit industry, I'm not actually going to talk about today because there's only 40 minutes. So with the development zones, the development zones basically are very politically useful um, instruments. Local cadres in China have faced these hard economic uh, targets. And even though they keep talking about doing away with these targets, they still haven't done away with them. And these zones provide a vehicle through which to attract industrial inv uh, investment. There are also great excuses for seizing land, right? So up until 2014, 2015, the great crash of land prices in large parts of China, um, they were uh, an attractive vehicle for raising local uh, revenue that way. Um, now, initially, these crude hard targets were very good for China. China probably lacked um, sufficient industrial investment. The level of industry was relatively low, but today, uh, various uh, scholars would argue, I think quite compellingly, that when you're trying to, um, when you have very high levels of industrial uh, uh, activities anyway, and something like 40% of total land is being in, uh, developed for industrial use when you already have a huge industrial base, something, that's, that's all from uh, the work by Su Fubing and Tauran, something's wrong. You've sort of overplayed your hand, overinvested. Um, What's more distressing is, in the initial stage, the game of just encouraging people to come and build factories and not really worrying too much what they were doing in these factories was OK. It still had a positive developmental role. But as China's developed, the needs for further upgrading have become more complex. Um, and what you actually see, based on the, the crude incentives they have, is a sole focus on on getting investment and very little focus on actually, one, making sure the firms that invested are doing what they said they were going to do, uh, or two, encouraging them to further embed or upgrade their activities um, in, in these zones. So when I talk to these 13 national level zones, basically, none of them had done a serious effort to try to uh, 
foster or force further upgrading by these, these firms. The, the, mass, uh, the vast majority of their human resources was focused on getting more industrial investment. And this is really profoundly different than what you saw in Taiwan and Singapore in their developmental heydays. Uh, and that's because the incentives were different. The people at the Industrial Development Bureau and the Ministry of Economic Affairs in Taiwan, their whole purpose was to make sure that the multinationals would transfer activities to local firms. And that's how they were judged in their, their performance. Um, turning to venture capital, um, in the past, there were very serious concerns that China did not have the right legal structures in terms of the LPGP structures that are typically what the US uses. Now, some people would argue this wasn't important anyway because Taiwan didn't have these and still had a venture capital industry. But as of 2007, they did change it to align more with what you typically see in the US or the UK uh, venture capital industries. But there's still problems in terms of state vehicles loom very large in the domestic venture capital industry. And they're not really interested in investing in these early stage ventures that are basically the point of most venture capital. Um, even more recent uh, innovations in terms of policies, such as the Venture Guiding Fund of the state, seems mainly to uh, have further accelerated this shift away from investing in seed and early stage investment. Very, they, want, they have this massive amount of funds, and they want to invest it in large scale projects. Um, and then, of course, there's the mega projects that are also sort of spurring more of this, these large scale projects. Um, now, foreign venture capital, though, is very active in China. And that has actually um, been very successful at uh, fostering, uh, supplying money for uh, startup firms that are innovative. If you look at something like uh, a more popular work like Sean Ryan's The End of Copycat China, most of the firms he mentions in that book are, in fact, foreign venture capital funded. Um, now, we already addressed why they're not using the industrial clusters properly, and we will in a second address um, why the, 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 the business group style of venture funding hasn't worked out well for China either. Here is just um, some data I collected on 24 different venture capital firms, basically roughly distributed between domestic uh, foreign VC and ethnic Chinese foreign VC venture capital firms. Um, and you see the domestic firms, most of their investments were not really in prototypical technology intensive investors. A lot of it were, were really state projects. Oh, you have to invest in this science park. OK, we're putting our money into that. For the ethnic Chinese foreign VCs, the majority of their projects were in these technology uh, intensive investments. For the foreign VCs, you saw some of that. Typically, for more of the captive firms, such as Intel's venture capital arm or Qualcomm's. But overall, a lot of their investments were in more business model uh, innovation. Now, that could be important, too, but it's probably not driving the 
hard uh, technological um, upgrading. So switching to the large firms in China, I'm going to talk about, I talk about many other firms, but just for the sake of this presentation, in the book I talk about many other firms, but for this presentation I'm going to first start with Lenovo, because this is one of the most prominent firms in China. Many people have argued that it's been quite successful. I want to argue that it was quite successful in the early days. It was founded in 1984. And slowly over time, it's uh, become less successful. And you could almost date that. I would argue you can date that from its embrace by the Chinese state. So this is a curious firm because it was always linked to the Chinese state in terms of coming out of the Chinese Academy of Sciences. But it was really on the politically, uh, political periphery for a long time. But by the mid-1990s, um, it had been well embraced by, by the Chinese state. And at the same time, it stopped, so it started out doing innovative software for Chinese character input. It was out-competing the foreign or Taiwanese products out there in the market. But then as it started to become a favorite son of the Chinese state, there was this battle between Liu Chuanzhi and Ni Guangnan. Ni Guangnan being a scientist, hardcore scientist, he wanted to keep investing in uh, actual technology. Liu, though, I think probably better understood the incentives in place in the system. He said, ah, who cares about that? Uh, we can do very well, thank you, by uh, making good our connections with the state. So. Even if you look at the PC industry, which has been the mainstay of the firm over time, it's actually uh, not been quite impressive and sort of been on a, a declining trajectory since its acquisition of IBM's um, business unit. So here you see that gradually over time, it uh, benefited from uh, a fairly large um, amount of state procurement. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have figures after 2003 for this, but really, so the early to mid-90s is when the uptick happened for them, um, and, and this is just one way to show that. For PC revenues, so here's, the green is Lenovo, okay, up here is Apple, you can't compete with Apple, these PC firms. Let's just be nice to Lenovo and just compare Lenovo like for like with the other sorry PC firms and their rapidly declining uh, uh, profit margins. And this is per PP, uh, PC sold. So for all these uh, firms, right after acquisition of um, IBM, Lenovo was quite high. It was better than all these firms. Unfortunately, I don't have data for Dell for that time, but out-competing Acer, out-competing um, uh, HP, but it's gradually declined so that now even lowly Asus, Huashuo, the ex-motherboard maker from Taiwan that no one ever thought was going to make a decent computer, and actually I do use Asus computers. Mine just died one day. They're not that great. It's a, a, about to catch up to them in terms of um, their overall uh, uh, price point per computer. And behind this is the fact that arguably uh, Lenovo still has access to relatively cheap capital from the Chinese state and 
actually, with things like the uh, appliances to the countryside program, they're still enjoying a lot of support from the state. So of all the, the subsidies that went out, they almost got half of the total subsidies. Yes, the Chinese state was clever and threw a couple of MNCs, a bone here and there, each less than 1% of the total. But Lenovo is still the, the favored son. So what's even more worrisome than it's less than stellar performance after spending all this money buying IBM's PC unit is the fact that it, it seems kind of stuck in this dying market of PCs. HP and Dell and these others are rapidly moving away from that market. Uh, they've already diversified from it. Um, and um, frankly, Lenovo, despite all the state support, has not really uh, shown much uh, innovation potential. Um, it only had 46 lead inventor US utility patents from China uh, during this 10-year period, well, 11-year period, uh, versus a firm like Inventech, which is only 40% of its size in 2013 revenues, had 112. Um, its mobile phone business has kind of hit the skids once again, um, despite buying the Moto division from Google. And what's its new gambit? Okay, we're buying the low-end servers from IBM because we know the Chinese state wants to get rid of foreign servers in the banking system and anything. This will be great for us. But it, it seems they're sticking close to these very protected markets uh, and not really engaging in much uh, technological upgrading. Now, Huawei is a very different company uh, from basically, I would argue, from all these other big Chinese companies that you can, in this uh, technology intensive space that you can think of. Um, if you look in terms of lead inventor patents from China, from domestic firms, Huawei accounts for 57% of those from 2003 to 2011. And, but why is it so different? Well, I would argue Huawei and uh, Ren Zhengfei have actually been quite irrational. Given the, the, the incentives set up for domestic firms in China, they've bucked those. Uh, Huawei wanted to up its game. So instead of sticking inside the cozy domestic market like ZTE, uh, ZTE did for a long time, they very early on went outside. They went out into the scary global market because they wanted actually to you know, meet the competition to up their game. Um, they also did um, other things like spending a lot of their own money researching CDMA in the early 2000s. They almost went bankrupt doing it. Very bad decision from current state fa favor point of view. The Chinese state was not interested in CDMA at that time, so it was their own funds. But that served them very well abroad, um, not only for CDMA, but the uh, standards that followed that, that were sort of closely tied to CDMA, it really helped them in international markets. And further on, I mean, they've never, so there's been these two Chinese standards, TDS, CDMA, and then for the um, TDLTE that the Chinese states put, pushed very actively. But if you look at Huawei's interaction with those, it's been quite minimal. They're not very interested. Unlike a firm like Datang that's desperate to uh, survive by upholding these local standards, and to a lesser extent, ZTE. Um, 
turning to the multinationals and the hybrids. So the multinationals, uh, you've probably all heard that over the last 30 years or so, there's been this globalization of R&D, right? It's been much easier to communicate internationally due to the telecommunication costs, the amount of data you can just send uh, digitally, so that multinationals are much more willing to move work away from the home base. It's just much easier to do. And initially, you know, there was this very large gap between what science and technology personnel in China were paid and what you typically saw for salaries for such personnel in the developed world. So that wasn't very enticing for these firms. But there was always this tension for the multinationals about they didn't want technology leakage to local rivals. They, they wanted to maintain control of their technology. Um, but how do you do that and also train local staff, encourage local staff to stay at your firm by giving them adequate opportunities? Well, to protect their, their IP, essentially, a lot of multinationals segmented R&D, you know, divided up into little slices and put one slice in China. Not very attractive for local uh, technology personnel to stay at those firms because they weren't, you know, not, there weren't that many opportunities to learn. Um, definitely kept sort of arch architecture level work outside of China because, you know, that, that would be the most uh, valuable uh, IP. Um, but it became this sort of vicious cycle of not, not providing interesting work. So they weren't able to recruit uh, top level talent. And I think this has gotten much worse over time. Maybe 10, 15 years ago wasn't that evident, and there were fewer multinationals in China. But as time has gone on, uh, Frank Gradenhaus, the ex head of Philips R&D in China, has been very frank that this is a huge problem for multinationals in China. They can't compete to attract talent anymore. It's not a question of money. It's just how they approach um, R&D activities in China. In contrast, the hybrids, they're basically using, uh, predicating and basing most of their activities in China predicated on using Chinese resources. So they don't do this segmentation of R&D. They don't keep architectural work outside of ch China. They have a much more virtuous cycle. They offer interesting work, and people want to stay or come to their firms. This is also true of the, you know, the handful of uh, quality local, local firms like Huawei. Um, Huawei, on the one hand, is known as being kind of mean to its employees <laughs> or strict. <laughs> Some people described it as a Korean approach to R&D. But on the other hand, they give them a lot of opportunities to learn. So that has, been, uh, has allowed Huawei to retain a lot of personnel. Um, so here are lead inventor utility patents, US lead inventor utility patents. So lead inventor, the lead inventor for these patents is based in China. And for these two periods, the, the 2007 and 2007 don't overlap. I, I didn't double count there. Um, the hybrids always had the most, and then the multinationals, and then the domestic firms. To try to tease out um, high tech versus non-high tech, here I just looked at the IT and biopharma patents. And again, it's the same pattern of the hybrids and then MNCs having more of these patents than the domestic firms. 
Now you could say, well, maybe they're spending more money on R&D or, or more money overall. But if you looked at, if you look at fixed asset investment over time or in R&D spending, it's dominated by the domestic firms. They're spending the bulk of the money, and yet their output is not um, very impressive at all. Now, what I'm focused on here is explaining uh, technological upgrading, technological development in technology-intensive sectors. What the data I just showed you also shows, though, is that in line with Lauren Brandt and Eric Toon's work on mature technology sectors, there's some evidence that in those sectors, the domestic firms aren't doing as badly. So in those sectors, they had the most patents in, in each period. Um, and, um, but the, the problem still is the gap. They're spending so much more on R&D. So overall, they're still sort of underperforming if you assume that one you know, UN of input should equal the same amount of output in, in terms of patents. But it's a, it, the, the gap is smaller in these mature sectors. The other thing to keep in mind is there's been massive subsidization of domestic firm R&D and patent applications, right? There's all these plans, both national and local, to encourage patenting. Guess what? China's very good at hitting targets for its plans, throw this money there to, uh, to have people patent, and they'll patent more. But there's actually a problem there as well. There are, some patents are more valuable than others. If you just give people money to patent willy-nilly, they will do so. Um, but despite, despite those, those incentives in place for the domestic firms, they're still far behind the others. And here, looking at R&D subsidies, the vast majority still go to the, uh, to, the, excuse me, to the domestic firms and the smallest portion to the hybrids. Um, I'm quickly running out of time, but I, I wanted to address several issues about what my findings mean beyond China. Um, can we say anything from this quirky case of high technology sectors in China to speak more broadly uh, on development? And I argue we, we can. Um, first of all, there are lessons for, for other developing countries in terms of foreign investment may not be just important because of the money. It could be in terms of importing institutions that have beneficial effects. Replacing these uh, relatively inefficient financial institutions of, of the domestic system with higher performing foreign ones. Um, in the Chinese case, it also suggests that high state capacity to run an industrial policy is not required. I think the most damning criticism against the developmental state is it's only been, been successful in a handful of countries. So it can really be a broadly applicable model. Um, and here, a fir firms that are nominally foreign are the ones driving development. Typically, we think of foreign firms as not being committed to development, so we'd stay away. But these foreign firms have a motivational mechanism. It's the shared ethnicity. Um, and perhaps this suggests that other nations can use a similar mechanism. Finally, the evidence I've shown is that this only really works in certain sectors, in these uh, value chain disaggregated, high clock speed, the product life cycles very fast, technology intensive industries. 
if you think of airplanes, high technology intensity, very slow clock speed, a 30-year clock speed maybe, you probably really need uh, a much more uh, state-driven or long-term capital uh, building system in place to be successful in that, that industry. It's here you can have firms concentrate on a, a, a very small segment of activity and leverage themselves up in these disaggregated industries that you're not going to see in something like um, the aircraft industry. Um, and here I just, I won't go into details. If anyone's interested, we can talk about in the Q&A. Just comparing these, the recommendations of these various other uh, models or pathways of development vis-a-vis -vis this, this hybrid model. Um, finally, I'd also like to suggest that this importing of institution really challenges a lot of claims we have about comparative capitalism or varieties of capitalism is one of the main schools of uh, comparative capitalism. Um, basically, in comparative political economy, there are a lot of assumptions about how foreign influence in the economy is generally a bad thing and a destabilizing thing. But here we have a case where it's actually beneficial and thus far hasn't seemed to be stabilizing. Again, I can go into further details in the Q&A if you want. And finally, going forward, well, what's going to happen to China and what's, what will be the role of these hybrid firms? And I think there's three sort of main generic scenarios for China uh, in, in, in the short term, let's say in the next five to 10 years. One is that the reform efforts that were first laid out at the third plenum will succeed. If they do so, then hybrids aren't necessary anymore. You will have a much more even playing field financially. You won't need these firms. If there's more of a muddling through without reform, then you would expect them to still exist and play a positive role in the economy. And finally, if a lack of reform leads to severe economic distress, um, maybe on the one hand that could, you know, reaching the debt limit could uh, induce reform and then you wouldn't need the hybrids. The other scenario is uh, perhaps there'd be a sharp turn away from market mechanisms and from, um, from the openness that has allowed these hybrids to flourish. After all, they have to be able to uh, engage with foreign financial institutions. If so, the, the hybrids are a threat. And I just also wanted to discuss industrial policy. The, the Chinese state has thrown a lot of money in recent years into industrial policy, particularly in high-tech sectors. Um, if there is successful reform, that could actually make industrial policy that much more effective because they might actually be engaging with uh, the type of societal investors they say they want to engage with. And there would be a, presumably a much more level playing field for all different uh, types of firms. So instead of sort of being stuck engaging with the same state-owned or at least state-favored firms they have been, they could uh, make use of other uh, perhaps more effective firms in China. But if the muddling through scenario uh, holds, um, then you would expect industrial policy to remain relatively ineffective. You'd have the same targets there in terms of these state-favored firms. Thank you. So just before, yeah, one quick question just to lead off, and then, and then absolutely should turn to the floor. 
is so when, when you when you when you step back, one one of the questions that, that comes to mind is even for hybrids, right? Which I understand the argument makes sense, right? You have, you have hybrids that have both access to capital. They have constraints, sort of market constraints on that capital, so it's sort of hard constraints. And but they have a, a China strategy, right? So they're engaged. One of the questions is, how are those hybrids? There still seems to me there's there's still a question, which is how are they able? There's a reason a lot of the MNCs segment, right? As you say, there's a reason they partition, right? There's a reason that given all of the lack of uh, market institutions, but also regulatory institutions around IP protection and things we all know. How do you think those uh, hybrids can s truly compete at the frontier if they're unable to protect those types of sort of core competencies? It's something that I've always wondered, right? Is, is, so in other words, is there an issue where even the hybrids, as good as they are, are still hobbled fundamentally to truly be able to compete given that fact, you know, you see, does that make right, sense? Right, that's a great question. Um, I think several different things are going on. I actually think in some jurisdictions in China, the IP protection Improving. has improved a, a lot. So if you're based in Shanghai, I've had various people tell me who've run in in recent years to people trying to steal their IP or have successfully stolen, that the, the state's been actually quite proactive. Um, but going along with that, a lot of the hybrids their main market is outside of China, right? Because if you're based in Shanghai, that's fine if you only want to sell in Shanghai, but what if you're going to other? So a lot of these hybrid firms, frankly, their main markets are, are abroad. Right. So they're, they're t typically in relatively advanced markets with more stable legal, infra legal infrastructures where they can you know, sue people relatively effectively. That's one uh, aspect of it. The other aspect is they have been more clever in terms of knowing how to run their operations just internally. Uh, um, to give one example, so you're designing chips, computer chips. You, you know, you're doing this on a server. Um, what they would do is create these servers that had no USB ports. These chips are huge nowadays. You can't just memorize all the data that's there. So you need some way to download the data. Right. They, you know, they have several locks to get into the room, and then there's no uh, way to, to download Bring the data. Um, so they do that. And I, I would say, though, that that is starting to be mimicked. There has been learning by multinationals that start going down, down that path as well. But I think what prevents them from going as far is sort of the internal politics of the multinationals. They still have people doing architecture-level design in right. San Jose or the UK. And those people you know, are more likely than not calling the shots. So they're, um, they're, they're prevented from, from that way. And um, yeah, so that's, that's basically my uh, address. Can, yeah. Should I just call yeah, on people? Yeah, you were waiting patiently. You have a mic. Just, go, just grab the mic. You want to just grab that mic right there? Uh, you have not mentioned China's indigenous innovation policy requiring resident multinationals to diffuse their technological know-how <coughs> to uh, local enterprises. Uh, has that been uh, pursued aggressively? And if so, what effect does it have on multinational investment in China? And could you give, for example, Qualcomm as an example where Qualcomm was required to license its chip designs 
at much lower than world standard uh, uh, royalty rates. Right. So, well, the, the Qualcomm case is an interesting one, I would say, because on the one hand, if you're a Qualcomm shareholder, you're very upset that they uh, are, are losing money because they're, they're not licensing the, the, the rates that they normally would like. Uh, with let, let's face it, you know, you have a patent, it's a monopoly position, essentially. Um, but on the other hand, it also sort of, the, the recent bullying, if you will, of the Chinese state against Qualcomm, that's one perspective. The other perspective is Qualcomm's an evil monopolist and <laughs> should be bullied. But either way you look at it, it's almost uh, an omission of failure because China all along has been trying to develop its own Qualcomm's. But it's essentially not been able to do that. These local firms haven't been very effective. So what do you do in the end? OK, we'll go back and browbeat Qualcomm, because our, our policies to uh, develop local alternatives have not succeeded. I mean, I, I think they've been somewhat successful at uh, using markets with a lot of state procurement to close them off, some of them uh, uh, from, from multinationals. So the, I already mentioned um, the servers for the state banking system. It, it looks very grim. That's why all these firms, multinationals, are essentially exiting that business in China one way or the other. Um, but is that really spurring the, the local firms? It seems to be much more of a stopgap. Uh, we're using these protectionist policies <coughs> to give these local firms market share, but uh, I would argue for a firm like Innovo, that in the medium to long term might just be uh, another Philip that prevents them from you know, having the discipline to develop more of their own capabilities. So uh, it could be bad for both parties. It could be bad for the HPs and IB IBMs of the world, but also really in the long term not that great for China either. I think it would. That sort of protectionism would work better if there was a much more um, open system of competition within China. And this sort of dovetails with the Brandt and Tune piece uh, in world development from this year, where in the mature technology sectors, the ones where they did best, there was a lot of competition. Uh, and the ones where there, were, there was less rigorous competition, uh, like in autos, that were sort of the local firms tended to be state-owned. Uh, China hasn't seen as much upgrading. Um, you were, uh, let's, okay, you and then you and then you and then you and Kyle, you are punished since I know you, so you have to go last. <laughs> Hi, uh, can you shed some light on uh, role of uh, higher education and research institutions in this landscape? One, if there's any uh, tech transfer happening from there to industry, and then where is it happening more in the uh, four categories that you mentioned? Right. So there's, you know, it has been. Uh, so I'm at arguably the second best science and technology university in China. I'm sure the others would object, but the <laughs> Zhejiang University likes to think it's second to Tsinghua. So. Um, there, we're very cognizant of there are uh, lots of policies to try to support, to make uh, R&D within the universities much stronger. And there is, you know, we have our own University of Science Park, and you see these around China. But I, I think there's still um, 
quite constrained uh, if, you, if you look at them in terms of just using the local financial market to, um, to set up their firms. Um, if you look at the patent data in terms of what universities are really quite active, it's really Tsinghua, I hate to say it since I met Zhejiang, but Tsinghua seems much, much more successful than any of the other Chinese universities, particularly when you look at, because you have to be careful, right? Basically, universities, probably even more so than state-owned firms, they have no budget constraint. They don't care if this patent ever yields any, anything of value in terms of commercial liability. Um, I mean, even in the US, there's this problem with, with university uh, patenting. So, uh, but Tsinghua not only has a lot of patents, but they also have a lot of patents that they've done with firms, which sort of suggests that, particularly with foreign firms, actually, that there's um, enough interest uh, in, 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 in the, the, val the value of that technology to do it. So I would say it's still early days, but at least Tsinghua seems to be pointing the way forward of being more effective uh, of university research. On the other hand, I would also argue that China is still a developing country. You, sometimes we have this problem. I mean, this is often it's true in China as well. It's like, oh, what are they doing in these you know, much wealthier societies? We should do the exact same thing now, when maybe that isn't actually what they should be doing. Arguably, at its current stage, China should be looking back to 1980s Taiwan and what the Industrial Technology Research Institute was doing then, which was much more focused not on innovation, but technology diffusion. Uh, you, you were next, I believe, yeah. Thanks. Could you speak a little bit about um, the trend of overseas acquisitions? So to what extent does that provide an alternative way to get R&D by just buying over smaller units that, that show potential? And I'm thinking about, for example, if you think about private car companies in China like Geely, Right. They're massively subsidized by the local government, but they can go out and buy parts of Volvo right. and set up R&D centers overseas. And through that, you know, there, you know, you, you could get some kind of within firm institutional diversity in that way. So, you know, there are many potential outcomes coming from that. So I just wondered about your thoughts. Yeah, I'm, I'm just about to start that project. I'm supposed to go interview Geely in China and then Volvo in Sweden in a, late April and May. So I would have that specific case, I would probably have more to say on it in, in the near future. Um, I'm a little bit more, particularly in the, the, the tech, more technology intensive sectors, um, not convinced that these acquisitions are going to work very well, principally because of the vehicles they're attached to. So it's still firms like Lenovo, or even worse in my mind, this uh, Tsinghua, Ziguang. I, I've praised Tsinghua, now I'm going, damn it, this, this uh, Xiaobanqie attached to Tsinghua. They, that firm, <laughs> I mean, basically is, uh, you know, technologically empty of its uh, own right, but was able to sort of get these loans from the <coughs> state and buy up all these uh, firms, some of which are based in China, but were foreign, foreign invested firms. Um, but I really wonder if they're a proper vehicle. I would highly doubt that they're a proper vehicle for, for pursuing this kind of uh, work. And then other examples, there's, um, 
There was a very, it's still arguably promising firm called Montage, also originally listed on NASDAQ, that Pudong Scientific, this uh, state organization in um, Shanghai, obviously bought out. Um, I'm less distressed by that because they seem thus far to have been sort of hands off on that firm, and at least the people in charge of that firm still have plans to sort of re-enter the equity markets and actually re-enter them abroad, not in China. So this is sort of a halfway house. They were, unfortunately, one of these firms probably uh, wrongfully attacked by the short sellers. I think short sellers have a role, but for this firm, um, they, uh, they suffered fr from that without any really strong evidence that they were um, one of these nefarious firms that should have been attacked by short sellers. So that's why they withdrew from, from NASDAQ in the first place. But overall, most of these state vehicles haven't, aren't very impressive firms, I would argue. Um, so, so it's going to limit the, the sort of absorptive capacity when they buy out the, these firms. Again, Geely may, it's a different sector, and also, as you say, it's a private firm. Hi, uh, thank you for the really fascinating talk. Uh, I just had a question uh, on your uh, conclusion that uh, you said that uh, foreign investment often allows uh, these firms to import foreign institutions. And I was wondering if you could talk a little more about that. Uh, specifically, what exactly, what type of institutions are being imported? Are they having these firms like list on foreign exchanges or? Right. Well, it, it is principally in the area of finance, but of course, there's clusters of institutions around that supporting their, you know, and essentially importing the, the legal infrastructure with the, you can't really separate that from the finance. Um, they're not all, particularly these days, listing abroad, um, but um, that has been in the past a very common uh, option for a lot of these firms. But I think much more important than that sort of the exit option and, and, and that is more the ability to get the funds to start up these, the, these firms to begin with. But it's principally the access to, to, to foreign finance that we're talking about. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, so the question I have is, is about the thin red line that was connecting ethnic Chinese status right. to the, you know, the, the propensity to locate in China and pursue this kind of operational strategy. So can you talk just a little bit more about so, sort of the demographics of this group? And does this, I guess, reflect the motives of these ethnic Chinese who have been overseas? Or does this in some way also reflect <coughs> efforts by the Chinese state or at least by actors in, in different institutions in China to lure the you know, talent back to China? Is this in some way the success of a human capital policy, even if the industrial policy is not working as well? Um, in part, it, it could be, the, it, it in part, is the success of the, you know, I mean, the thing that makes me positive for China's future just in general is its incredible amount of human capital development. I think the market institutions as they stand today are quite bad, but they've had really, really good ca human capital development. Um, I, you know, the formal policies, the, you know, having these returnee centers and zone and technology and those, those I would argue are less impressive. They tend to, the really good returnees tend not to go to those places. I mean, 
or they're sort of there in a trivial extent. Yeah, I was going to return to Shanghai anyway, and there's like, oh, there's free office space here, so I went here. But if you go, you know, further out to less attractive locations, they're getting sort of less skilled people to go. But I, I, I would argue, I, I, I started out focusing more on just returnees, and then I decided to broaden it. It doesn't really. So there's there's people who are just locals who've never been abroad. There's the so-called returnees, and then there's ethnic Chinese from other places, uh, principally Taiwan to lesser extent Hong Kong, but um, elsewhere as well. And I, what I wanted to be careful about is I, I didn't, I knew I, with my jet lag, I couldn't remember anything. But I should, I should sort of discuss here what's behind the operational strategy, because I wanted to, so my observation that ethnicity had something to do with it was an empirical observation through uh, the course of the research. But I wanted to keep open the possibility that you could, maybe I'm wrong, maybe there are uh, you know, non-ethnic Chinese people who also embrace this uh, China-based uh, China operational strategy. So for these startups, you had to have your functional HQ in China and then explicitly sort of have stated this, this strategy. So you don't actually have to be ethnic Chinese. But the fact of the matter is I looked and looked. I finally once thought, ah, I found the firm. I met this firm, and it was, uh, to be politically incorrect, a bunch of white guys from New York State who said, yeah, we're going to start this firm in China. Um, but right now, most of our tech personnel are still in the US. We're gradually bringing all this stuff over here um, and hiring local staff. Um, but then that firm went out of business before they were able to realize this uh, vision. So uh, there are chances that it, it's just not um, uh, based on ethnicity. But I think there are good sort of ideational and interest-driven re reasons to understand why that would be a case. You assume, oh, I mean, and I've heard this from entrepreneurs. Like, I know how to operate here much better than average foreigner, so I, I have an advantage of using the resources here that they don't necessarily uh, are able to use. If you think of something like uh, you know, a number of years ago, McKinsey put out a quite damning report on the quality of S&T personnel in China. But if you looked at the report, it was really based on what the multinationals wanted. But maybe what the multinationals wanted was, was wrong in some extent. I mean, I think these hybrid firms and Huawei and other firms are sort of proven that they can use resources that them, you know, one of the complaints of the multinationals, for, in, uh, for instance, was the lack of English among this technical staff. Well, that sort of exposes, in some ways, the, the, the biases or the provincialism of the multinationals, maybe. Um, you certainly can have good technical staff that don't, don't speak English. Um, uh, yes, you and then Bill. Right. Zhejiang and Tencent and so on, those right. type of companies. Right. Well, those. Yeah. Well, those are also hybrids. Remember, they were they were, uh, you know, principally backed by by uh, venture capital from abroad. So I, I I would consider both those firms as 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 hybrid firms, clearly based in China, but. Uh, uh, Foreign finance, particularly you know, in their their, their early stages. Now, there, 
There are complex regulatory reasons, right? Alipay as opposed to Alibaba Holdings is not a, is not a foreign invested enterprise, but it can't be basically. And that's one of the reasons that uh, Mayun was able to sort of say um, to SoftBank and Yahoo, like, oh no, this has to be a separate company and you don't get any part of it because <laughs> there are these government regulations. But th those two, I would say, were squarely in this hybrid category. Um, Bill? Yeah, I just have uh, <coughs> two small questions and then actually based on this last thing first, just a very small comment, which is that it is interesting that a lot of these e-commerce firms and other kinds of uh, social media firms and so on that have developed domestically in China um, in recent years uh, in this kind of a captive market with all kinds of soft budgets actually seem to be doing relatively well, although not necessarily innovating uh, with technology. They're, they're putting existing technology to pretty efficient use. Um, but the, the two questions I was going to ask, first of all, just following up on, on Kyle's point, um, I think this overall mechanism is pretty compelling and clear. Um, but on that thin red line, are there mechanisms other than shared ethnicity that you could imagine driving ideational commitment to a China-based <coughs> strategy or other host country-based strategies maybe further afield? Uh, and then the, the second question, very quickly, um, relates to measurement of innovation. And the main measure you seem to have for that is patents, at least that you presented here. Um, and one thing that occurred to me was that I don't know much about technology, but I do occasionally talk to, to lawyers who deal with patent cases, um, and they complain vociferously and frequently, particularly in Beijing because of where you have to file certain suits jurisdictionally, uh, about the prevalence of patent trolls. Uh, who are mostly these domestic firms, I'm assuming. So in fact, if the patent system is skewed in this way, it would in fact make your case all the more compelling that there's even less real innovation by domestic firms. I wonder if you could speak to that and the utility of that versus other possible measures of innovation. Great, those were great questions. On the first one, I would argue that these e-commerce firms, uh, e-commerce firms tend to actually be these hybrid firms and I would, I think there's a lot of, or has been in the past, you know, you get to, there's the platform problem, you, you become the platform and then there's less competition. But before you become the platform, there's a fair amount of competition and, you know, me too entry of, of firms entering that sector. But those are, you know, heavily invested by these foreign uh, venture capitalists. Um, I, would, I would agree with you, there's sort of less technology intensive and to me less exciting. That was what, back to the earlier slide, like the, the they tend to be invested by the more classic uh, Anglo-American VCs that um, are, are less wedded to the hard, hard technology stuff. Um, the next issue, the ethnicity issue. There certainly could be other mechanisms uh, we could uh, out there. I don't want to say this could be the only one that, that would work. It's just, from the evidence I have, um, and, and this is, I, I didn't bring this up earlier, but this is sort of, um, this is based on this idea of the nationality of multinationals. So this literature that, oh, you think, even in this globalized world, you think that multinationals are sort of free to roam around the world and base whatever they want where, but actually look at their activities, they tend to be quite sticky to their home whether the home is divided, uh, you know, the nation state or maybe for European firms or the EU-wide home. They tend to base 
you know, have a, a strong home bias. And, and then f from that, people have already, people like Doramus et al. and um, others, uh, that um, there are sort of two reasons for that. One being more ideational, maybe patriotic, and or thinking that you have these advantages in this market, whether or not they exist. And the other being you actually do either through um, some sort of positive feedback mechanism, the, the institutions in place in those home markets uh, feed into your core corporate competencies, and that's why you want to keep resources there. Um, and what was your... Uh, um, Patents, yeah. the patent, patent measuring, right, measuring, right, yeah. right. So measuring the so I I there is a section in the book about why I did not use Chinese patents because they're very problematic for a number of reasons. Um, I had the U.S. utility patent data. M maybe you could argue I should have used so-called trilateral patents: U.S., Japan, right. EU. Um, I suspect they would probably pretty much the, the same. Those are more important for Italian firms tend to patent more in the EU than the e US. But if it's a, you know, a third country, uh, well, a fourth country in this case, outside of these three patent systems, I think that, that probably matters less. And, it's, and the good thing about US patents, um, from the perspective of whether they measure uh, if it's worth something, is they're expensive. You typically aren't willy-nilly just going to patent. But I also, in the book, have a lot of other, because patents, even if they actually measure innovation, they're measuring innovation. They're not measuring technological learning, which is the other aspect. So I tried to come up with other measures which um, are a little more discursive in the book. Or, and I, I, I didn't talk about in the in the integrated circuits area, I go into these very fine grain Arcane. details about it that I knew in 40 minutes I wasn't going to be able to do. Um, and, and with Lenovo, I touched on it a little bit, but these other computer firms, I talk about more um, what, what has happened to them to look. Uh, I mean, it was very easy for them because they just sort of rapidly went into decline. So they <laughs> clearly, vis-a-vis -vis the technological frontier, were rapidly falling behind. Um, yes. Oh, <laughs> oh I'm, I'm sorry. Would, would you have a, Actually, I was just scratching my eye, but uh, oh. I'm going to take this as an opportunity. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> at the beginning, you said that there were the, the four different or four different kinds of companies. Could you somehow quantify for us how many or what percentage of companies in China are in those those four categories somehow? Sound lovely on the yeah. <laughs> recording. Um, the the vast majority of firms are going to be domestic firms. This gets quite complicated because I I didn't go into it into the talk, but um, I feel quite strongly that um, we need to properly identify these different types of firms. So under the the Chinese system. If you have 25% foreign invested, it's an FIE. But that doesn't actually suggest you have foreign control. So I, I, I said it had to be 50%. Um, so it doesn't align exactly with the, the Chinese data in that regard. And then for these hybrid firms, it gets more, um, if I was going to take the, um, 
entire population of firms, then I would have to go through each one to determine whether it was hybrid or not. I mean, that, that was another reason I used the US patent data. I had to go firm by firm. And uh, for the firms I didn't know much about, sort of the foreign firms, you know, sort of research uh, what this firm was to try to, to determine that. Um, but in any case, well over 90% are going to be one of the two categories of domestic uh, domestic firms in China. Um, yes? So thank you for your talk. Very interesting and very compelling framework. Uh, I'm wondering how some of these hybrids might form and how certain things that are state support but not as clearly like procurement and state funding access to the banking system might be related. So imagine, a f say, like e-commerce, where you have the government very clearly sending a policy signal that they want to develop this area. Uh, how do the entrepreneurs that you've talked to perceive, where are they looking for these kind of signals that say, I should be investing in this industry, not just from economic signals, but from a political side? And then how do they get to the point where a foreign investor thinks that they understand this, these dynamics well enough to make that investment? And when does the <coughs> entrepreneur start to look outside of China for investment? Okay, so there's a number of questions there. Uh, um, what I found interesting in the research was I found certain firms that, so s some firms that are initially founded, they may not even be properly incorporated at the very beginning. And they're sort of, I found a number of firms that were sort of thinking about, well, should I go to the foreign route or the domestic route? And what I found really interesting was there's some firms that um, I talk about several in detail, but I didn't present them here. Um, for instance, there was a firm called Arca that generated a lot of VC interest, but managed to get a lot of state support because it promised to do you know, the Chinese CPU. Oh, that sounds great. We're going to have our own central processing unit. Uh, that's very high tech. Um, and um, basically decided, oh, we're not going to incorporate abroad. We, have the, the, we can get these fat government contracts from the Ministry of Science and Technology um, and um, sort of evolved into this state-favored firm relatively rapidly. Um, I, in terms of how they determine uh, what the, you know, what is the advantageous market um, for them? Uh, there's this huge literature of scanning entrepreneurial opportunities <laughs> that is beyond the scope of, uh, of, my, of my book. But um, uh, at least in the mind of these entrepreneurs, they're not, they tend to believe that they're very well embedded in the local economy. They have a lot of information about it. So if they choose to go, if it's a choice between being China market focused and foreign market focused, it's probably their sense of the, um, the opportunities uh, per se, not the fact that they can't, um, that they're somehow barriers to them uh, locally, except sometimes sort of procurement barriers. I mean, I, uh, 
for instance, I, 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 I talked to a small telecommunications firm uh, that was one of these foreign invested firms, and they're like, we're never, you know, Huawei already destroyed Harbor Networks, the one sort of promising um, hybrid that was trying to compete in the, the main uh, telecom market. We're never, you know, what is that market? You're selling into the state uh, oligopoly of these, you know, uh, switches and, and routers. We're never going to be able to compete there. We just, from from the get go, we we understand that. Um, so, so they looked elsewhere for for little niche markets. Um, I don't know if that fully answers your question, but uh. yeah, well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Learned a lot. Thank you all for coming, and. Uh,